Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to all of you as to the fifth public discussion. This is, of course, centered around Small Town Reckoning, which is Episode 5 of the CNN original series, The Redemption Project with Van Jones. Eight weeks of a very powerful docuseries, which takes viewers into the room as offenders come face to face with those impacted with, by their violent crimes as part of a restorative justice process. And of course tonight it's a very deep honor um, and delight to have with us two people from the, that Sunday episode and that would be of course uh, Michelle Walter and Jonathan Scharer. And I'd like to share with you just a bit about both of them. Um, I'm just going to share that I, of course, am Molly Rowan Leach, and I'm very happy to host this discussion series. And I'm founder and executive producer of Restorative Justice on the Rise, which was founded in 2011, providing a powerful dialogue and podcast series that features global experts in the field of restorative justice and also allies with major organizations in the field globally to raise the visibility of restorative justice on multiple levels worldwide. So it's much more than a podcast. It's an invitation to help you and your communities catalyze and uplift um, your work that is pointing towards justice transformation, one relationship at a time. Uh, for more that work that we do and for our podcasts and archives, which include a wonderful dialogue with Van Jones um, during the launch of his extremely important Cut 50 project, go to restorativejusticeontherise.org. And of course, I mentioned that our distinguished guest tonight, um, Jonathan Scharr, is here and he's the director. He was the facilitator in Sunday's episode. And that means much more than what we necessarily saw on camera. So we're going to talk about that tonight a bit. But he's the director of the Restorative Justice Project at the University of Wisconsin Law School's Frank J. Remington Center. He has extensive experience as a facilitator of victim-offender dialogues in sensitive and serious crimes and as a trainer in a variety of practices. Jonathan is a examining criminal justice policy with a focus on victim empowerment and addressing racial disparities in the criminal justice system and has helped design and implement multiple restorative justice diversion programs and restorative responses to crime. Additionally, Jonathan currently serves as an elected member of the Advisory Council for the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice, which is happening to have a big conference coming up in June, um, mid-June in Denver. That's NACRJ.org. And of course, Michelle, Michelle Walter is a dedicated and longtime educator and she is mother to Nathaniel Walker, who was just 16 when a horrible heroin-related crash ended his bright and promising life. And Michelle's courage in being willing to be here tonight and to go forward in speaking with Thomas Johnston and in front of a global audience is deeply courageous. And we want to honor the life of Nathaniel with this particular dialogue and that he's, his spark is with us tonight as we discuss and reflect 
together. And so just a moment to Nathaniel. And I'd really like to make sure to finally mention before we open our discussion that it's it's really important to um, check out the Reform, Reform Alliance, a very uh, recently launched and huge project from Van Jones, who's the CEO, uh, with a very powerful board of athletes and executives, and including Jay-Z, to get behind the of transforming our justice system, particular in reforms case, very focused right now on uh, parole and probations as a first effort. So we want to thank Van and his team for their work, um, to the Cut50 team, as well as to DreamCore and to Magic Labs Media for all of their efforts. We also would like to let you know that there's a hot link right now on the webcast page to the University of Wisconsin's Restorative Justice Project page for more information. You can directly hotlink live tonight to that page to find out more about their programs and what they're up to. It's much more than the Victim Offender Dialogue program that they're offering training uh, or education or certificates for. It's um, widespread across communities and including in schools. Also, um, finally, to access social assets for the Redemption Project and the CNN site for all the information on the series, you can additionally click on that webcast page tonight, that sidebar bar, or scroll down sometimes on your viewer. It's going to be at the very bottom. Or go direct to CNN.com. And replays of each Sunday's episodes are also available, if you missed any of them, at go.cnn.com. Additionally, we've discovered that Sling Television is a great way to subscribe to use a DVR system to record each of the episodes. So if you aren't familiar with Sling Television, you can access that on a laptop or device as well as on a TV. Um, the Reform Alliance I mentioned earlier, that's reformalliance.com. Van Jones is on Twitter and Facebook, cut50.org. And, of course, um, Van has a great new podcast called Incarceration, Inc. So without further ado, I'd love to just, um, of course, welcome our very special guests tonight with us. Um, that's Jonathan Scharr and Michelle Walter. Um, welcome to you both. Thank you for being a part of this discussion. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And really, I'd just love to kind of stay on the note, Jonathan, if we could open tonight just with a bit more about your program and especially how people can find out more about uh, victim offender dialogue information or trainings. And, um, you know, it was my sense in, in learning more about the University of Wisconsin's programs. I mean, you've been doing this for a very long time. And so um, it would be really great to open up with just a little bit more about um, what you're doing presently and, of course, since, I believe, 1987. Sure. Um, yeah, happy to do so. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, as far as, I'm aware um, the longest continuously running academic program um, in restorative justice and offering um, 
Victim Offender Dialogue Services. Um, you know, back when it started in 1987, it started as uh, VORP, uh, which sort of was based on the Canadian model and sort of the the early days of uh, of restorative justice. Um, and again, as provided that service in, in some capacity um, now for over 30 years. Um, so it's been a privilege for um, for me to be here. Uh, the way that it operates um, is as a full-time clinical legal program uh, where students uh, at the University of Wisconsin Law School, um, it's an application process and um, they apply to, to take part in this program, um, much like all of our other clinical programs and then are with this program for basically an entire calendar year. So the new group just started uh, today. Um, they will be with me um, sort of full-time in the summer, 40 hours a week, um, and then during the academic year as well. So they'll be uh, with me until next May, um, right when the, the next group will um, will start. Um, in the summer, they, you know, we do about 100 hours of training to uh, get to a space of uh, being able to work on these cases and, and all the training that, that we do, um, I sort of based it uh, around the foundations of the standards set up by our Crime Victims' Rights Council um, for doing VOD work in serious and sensitive crimes. Um, so everything we do is sort of based on um, meeting all of those standards and then going beyond and, and providing additional education and training around uh, trauma and, and victimology and offense dynamics and working with um, different individuals and, again, specifically looking at working in these um, spaces of, of serious and violent crime. Um, I mean, as it really is a privilege to be invited into um, that space of, of people's lives where we can, um, you know, work with them to, to meet whatever needs that they have that they feel would be accomplished by um, having some form of communication with um, the person, person responsible for uh, causing them harm. Um, that can take sort of different um, approaches. I said the, the most common would be sort of the direct face-to-face -face meetings, um, but we have also facilitated um, sort of phone uh, VOD uh, where we might be either present with one party or the other or with both parties um, and, uh, and sort of looking at technology-enhanced communication um, wherever possible. We work with um, victims all around the country. Um, really the agreement that we have with the Department of Corrections, uh, their Office of Victim Services and Programs, who is our sort of closest program partner um, and where we receive the vast majority of our referrals um, and who we've had a relationship with um, really since the beginning of, of that office back in 2000, um, with really some of the only restrictions um, you being that the, the person responsible for the harm um, is, is in Wisconsin, whether that's in a Wisconsin correctional facility, uh, probation or supervision or um, parole in Wisconsin or, or even finished with, with supervision um, in Wisconsin. Um, so really we serve the entire state um, in this process and I've worked with um, victims all across the country and survivors and family members um, and anyone sort of who is looking for this sort of process um, where I also have access to the other party. Um, I don't generally have access to correctional facilities in other states, um, so that makes that a, you know a little bit difficult. But um, you know certainly willing to entertain the the possibility if there's some uh, you know option for technology enhanced um, 
you know, the commitment of dialogue and communication um, in that way. But the vast majority of individuals, um, both parties reside um, here in Wisconsin, but uh, know that we mm-hmm. do and serve a much wider community. I really appreciate the fact that to me, ever of someone doing this deep work and for as long as you have, the fact that in many ways it feels like you're helping to bridge um, systems uh, and offer something different and in a way that, that really is translatable. So I just wanted to mention that, that um, in viewing and in knowing about how, you know, there's different ways to create uh, you know, a high risk or a, a severe crime process. Um, the, in this episode that you facilitated, you, you know, you, with the law background um, and with your um, assi- two assistants, and forgive me, I can't remember their names. Um, can you state their names, if you yes. would, please? Just yeah, so, so the, the two clinical students were Alex Huber and Corinne Coburn. Uh, both who have uh, since since graduated, um, and Alex now works as a uh, assistant district attorney, and uh, Corinne is going to um, just graduated is going to be uh, taking a job at a legal nonprofit working on reentry issues of of individuals returning from um, you know correctional facilities to the community. Mm, thank you. And so per- perhaps tonight, uh, as part of our discussion, we can look into this area that's very special and unique to your acumen with your law background and with you know the University of Wisconsin in really supporting a cohesive dialogue cross systems, so to speak, um, with judges, with DAs, with VAs. Of course, as a, um, victims advocates have so much to offer um, in you know giving some feedback to how restorative justice really holds victims in a space of safety while not over, you know, over-focusing on any one party. And certainly correct me if, if there's anything that I'm sharing that, that needs that. Um, but I, th- I think what, what I'd like to do, I, want, I definitely want to get to Michelle here in, and bring her into this conversation, and then we'll come back. Um, to some framing around the broader field of restorative justice. And and so um, I want to bring you, Michelle, in and just see if you would be willing um, to share a bit about that time that you spent, um, because I believe you had mentioned it was a year, meeting with Jonathan and um, the the two others, Corinne and, and Alex, the, the young and Alex, to prepare for your meeting with Thomas. And wondering if you would share a bit about that experience. So it it was a year, right, at least a year previous to the actual Um, dialogue. Alex and Corinne came starting in um, July um, and came to my home and uh, started talking. We first um, went back to the actual accident, and um, we talked about the day of the accident, talked about Nathan, um, and spent some time talking about those two things, um, getting to know me, um, asking about my family, and different things of that nature, and um, then 
started exploring questions of what what questions did I have, um, what questions did I want answered. Um, as time went on, then um, later on, Jonathan came with them. Um, then they had to go to the prison and find out um, where um, Thomas was at, you know, could he answer those questions? Um, where was he at as far as, you know, did he accept any accountability um, or not? Um, you know, where was he at in all of the, the spectrum of things? Um, how did he remember things? Um, just a, a gamut of things. And then uh, they had to gauge if I was going to be ready to meet, if that was going to be something that was going to be, if we were going to be ready to do that, if so, how long was it going to take, um, if he was going to be ready, um, if he was, how long was that going to take? You know, it's definitely a process of going back and forth between the two parties and and just figuring out, you know, what is best for everybody. It's not just a one-sided thing um, mm -hmm. where I decide, you know, this is what I want and this is what needs to move forward or this is what he wants and this is what needs to move forward. It's definitely, you know, a back-and-forth thing. And I think that's something and that so Jonathan that, would also say. Mm -hmm. Did you want to add to that, Jonathan, to, to the process? That, and, and just for the time context of things, uh, Michelle, July meaning um, a year, the next July after was when the actual process, the victim offender dialogue occurred. Is that correct? Just for uh, it was reference. in May. Yeah, so probably okay. about nine, ten months, I think. Um, so mm -hmm. we had, yeah. you know, Michelle and I had initial communication um, prior to the sort of case being open. So, um, again, so she and I talked extensively about the situation and um, what she was potentially looking for. And then, um, you know, there was, she spent a little bit of time sort of on the wait list and then, uh, the case has to get sort of uh, screened and um, everything has to get approved by the Department of Corrections. So we need um, approval from various levels within the DOC, uh, from the institution um, perspective. So they'll talk with the social worker and it might be the social services director, whoever the victim's liaison is at the institution, um, Office of Victim Services, uh, who looks at a number of elements related to the incarcerated individual or individual who's on supervision. Um, and then also uh, they contact uh, the, again, the incarcerated individual's probation parole agent to make sure that everybody um, in really the whole continuum is on board and supportive and that we can be aware of any concerns or issues that might exist related to um, particular individuals as it relates to, uh, you know, appropriateness. And um, it really helps us to have a lot more, uh, you know, potential data points and also just make sure everyone is um, supportive of it and think that, that it's going to be um, a good idea. And that's really, again, been our strong relationship with the Department of Corrections to provide this service. Um, to individuals who have experienced 
significant harm. Um, and that has really been key to giving us access to individuals, um, again, from the longstanding relationship we've had um, and the amount of, of this work that we've done have sort of, you know, built and cultivated those relationships that um, allow us to um, have a great deal of, of access to individuals, um, as well as, um, again, with the individual's permission, um, you know, the, the records at the institution um, to, to take a look at as much ancillary information as we can so that we can make the most informed decisions um, about individuals as possible um, as it relates to appropriateness as in addition to things like how, you know, where were they at when they were initially incarcerated versus where they're at now, where have things potentially changed, what have they done, what is their conduct history um, been or institutional adjustment programming, um, just so that we can help find out um, about the individual as, as much as possible. Um, and in addition to sort of the uh, often, again, we're going to go to the courthouse and, and get as much ancillary information that we can there from, um, you know, transcripts and court records and um, pull as much information and data um, that we can to have as best an understanding of the situation um, to be as helpful as possible. I mean, that's really our goal um, in, in right. all of this. And that was sort of, again, what we did in that this case as well. Right. And when right. Jonathan and, and, you know, and I initially Please go ahead, Michelle. When Jonathan and I initially spoke in July, he had said, you know, we have this many cases ahead of yours, so you know, it might be a while, it might be till December or or so before we get to your case and then we we talked again a month later and he said, Okay, we're ready and I said, Oh, okay. He's like, Well, are you not ready? And I said no, that's fine. You just said December was probably going to be as early as we were going to get to it, so I just wasn't expecting a phone call back so soon. So it was um, a lot quicker. I wasn't planning mm -hmm. to start as soon as we did, but but it moved forward a lot quicker than I had anticipated. So the ducks mm. just kind of all mm -hmm. lined up a lot quicker than I had anticipated that they would. So it just moved forward, and then we we worked um, back and forth until um, a year ago May, and a year ago May, then we um, had our meeting. So a year ago so, from right now is when when we went. Mm-hmm. Mm. And Michelle. Is there anything that you would like to share about, given that it's now been that year uh, of time since the process, um, at least the process, the actual meeting, um, because obviously it's much bigger than that, as you've so um, thoroughly shared, both of you. Do you have anything you'd like to share about reflections? Um, and I'll also ask Jonathan, so certainly if you'd rather not, we can ask him as well. I mean, I I think that it was, you know, I, I think that something that people need to understand is there were many, many, many hours of footage that had to be um, condensed into the 42 minutes that people saw. Um, and I I think that that's, that's the most difficult um, part of all this. There were, you know, 
five or six hours of footage just on the dialogue day. Um, and so there were lots and lots of things said um, that didn't make it into the episode. Um, so it's very difficult to explain all of the many things that were said um, in that room when you only see 42 minutes. And of that 42 minutes, like 10 minutes of it is um, of that day. Um, you know, there were there were lots of things shared that you just can't even wrap your head around. And it's such a busy day. And, you know, you talk about so many different things that it's just kind of a whirlwind, it's, you know. You you can't even wrap your head around it. You have to go and and just sit and, and mm. think about wow. You know it's it's you know it's overwhelming and it's um it's it's very very powerful, but it's it's very um, overwhelming in lots of different ways. Um, so you just spend a lot of time after the fact reflecting because you know you're. You just can't even totally wrap your head around everything that happened. Do you feel happy or maybe happy is not the word. Um, are you glad that you stepped into that process? Do you feel like things were, certain things may have shifted for you or not? Is there anything that, that came of it that – go ahead. There was I, – I was very concerned, and I told Jonathan ahead of time, that I was very concerned about how I would feel in that room. I mean, nobody knows what they're going to feel like when they face someone that has contributed to the death of their child. And, um, you know, you just don't know what you're going to feel in that space. Mm -hmm. And um, so I didn't know what I was going to feel. And I can honestly tell you that um, I felt a lot of peace in that room. And a lot of, it was very calm um, in that room. And... Um, I, I felt a, a big weight lifted off my shoulders when I left that room and, uh, and I left a lot of things in that room and it was, it was very, uh, very calming to be able mm -hmm. to do it. And uh, I'm glad that I went through the process. I I was able to, um, you know, I was able to get questions answered, but it's not just about getting the answers to questions. It's about hearing the person that you need to hear answer the questions. You know, it's kind of like if your child 
takes a cookie out of the cookie jar and you see the crumbs are on their face and you say, did you eat the cookie? And they say, no. Well, you know the answer to the question before you've asked it. You just want to hear them say what they did. And there were a lot of questions that I knew the answers to, but I wanted to hear him say the answers. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of those questions answered. Mm-hmm. So that was that was very powerful for me. Thank you, Michelle. Mhm. And jo- Jonathan, um did you want to reflect at all in this year since on that particular dialogue process? Was there anything you'd like to make known about your experience of it. I, I want to just say I appreciated your presence. And um, I, it's interesting that Michelle was sharing the depth of the calm that she felt. It, it felt to me that you brought some calm with your facilitation presence. Well, I mean, our goal is always to create a safe space um, to allow difficult conversations to, mm-hmm. to take um, I mean, that's sort of the, the main goal. I mean, I really view this like our work is – you know, 98% front end. It's all in the preparation that we do. Um, you know, our goal, our hope is that there's very little, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> our hope is that there's very little we have to actually say or, or guide once we get going um, on the day itself. And and this, this dialogue really was, you know, was no different. I mean, we work towards crafting um, sort of the frame of the conversation, sort of, a, you know, an outline that's really more kind of a checklist just so that we remember everything that, you know, throughout the preparation process, all the questions, all the topics, everything that we wanted to talk about um, is able to be addressed um, to provide that opportunity. And I actually, um, while Michelle was speaking, I actually went and I, I looked at the um, sort of her oral debrief from a couple weeks after the dialogue and um, very, very similar comments and, and that sense of, um you know, making sure that, you know, there was nothing that we left out. Um, so, again, I mean, yeah, we, we probably met six or, or seven hours. I mean, it was, um, again, a, a full day. Um, and there's a lot that, that takes place, um, a lot that unfolds in the depths of those conversations, exploring um, people's lives um, and exploring who all the people involved are. And, yeah, I mean, that sense of calm that she described, I um, again, I – as much as we can tell people that, um, you know, at, at some point that there's often a lot of nervous energy going in, but almost inevitably at some point the um, energy in the room sort of even shifts that um, once we're through some of the more difficult parts, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. They, there's a tangible change um, that exists mm-hmm. in it. Feel um, again interesting that that the conversation becomes easier, um, and that there is this like deep, intense connection that we as facilitators just um, you know best case scenarios we sort of melt into the background and and we're there again very mm-hmm. taking notes and so uh, you know Michelle referenced that there's a sense of, like the day becomes a whirlwind and one of the things that that we do is is we um, take extensive notes um, and draft a narrative summary of. Um, of what happened, capturing, um, you know, questions and responses and um, as much as we can um, from the day um, to provide that. And, again, there are times where we are able to, um, if we get the appropriate permissions, to film dialogues for people um, so they can have that record because there is so much that um, 
that we do cover, but we want to make sure that, um, you know, people don't leave there and five minutes later say, oh, I wish I would have asked this question. Um, that we want it to be as comprehensive as possible and that for people to feel um, fully satisfied that they've had their opportunity to be heard, they've had the opportunity to ask every question that they want, um, to ask and explore every topic that they um, that they want to explore. And that's one of the reasons why we take as long as we do in the preparation. Um, I, again, I, there's so many people that they might start and they feel like they're ready to meet tomorrow. And inevitably, you know, to a person there, um, extremely glad that we take the time, attention, and care that we do um, in preparing people, in allowing them time to reflect, in bringing questions and answers back and forth, um, allowing time in between those meetings for people to further reflect on questions um, that we ask so that maybe the next time we meet with them they might say, you know, I was thinking about the, you know, how I answered that question and actually, um, you know, here's what I'd add to it or here's, you know, here's how I'd I'd answer thinking a little bit more about it, um, that we want to be able to elevate and enhance the quality of conversation that people can have when when they come together um, and only guide as, as much as necessary. I mean, this process is not about us. Um, this is just about how do we meet the needs of the individuals involved mm-hmm. uh, and help them walk away um, with as much sort of, uh, you know, whatever they're looking for, whether that's um, answers mm-hmm. or information or, or healing or, or peace. And what that looks like varies from person to person, um, but it's incredibly meaningful when, you know, people walk away and, and we talk to them a couple weeks later and they, you know, tell me that they're, you know, the nightmares or the dreams that they have might have had for years or, or sometimes even decades um, are gone, like that those have stopped or they feel that they can breathe easier um, or that people notice that they're, you know, may not have known that they've gone through the process, but yet notice something um, different about that person where um, their whole attitude about sometimes the world um, changes after going through this process. Mm. I want to pause for just a moment to acknowledge and thank, of course, our very special guest tonight, Jonathan Shar, who is the director of the Restorative Justice Project at the Law School University of Wisconsin-Madison, and of course, Michelle Walter. Both of us, uh, both of them were the central focus, uh, and of course, Nathaniel Nathan Walter, um, Michelle's son of episode five and original series, The Redemption of Van Jones. And so we're with them tonight and want to cordially welcome those of us with us live to begin if you would like to submit questions or comments to do so through the Q&A tab tonight. That's on your webcast page, which also has some handy links to link out to to find out more information about the Reform Alliance, about the entire Redemption Project series, and also about more about the uh, Justice Project at the University of Wisconsin. So um, simply go over to that tab and type in your question or comment, and we'll be screening um, questions tonight. Um, we can't take all of them, but we would, we'll do our best to take at least some before we close tonight. So, I, Jonathan, I'd like to come back for just a moment to some of what you were just describing around the the process. And I know um, in many of our conversations in the past four, four, now five weeks, we've talked a bit about the misconception of restorative justice. And I'm wondering if you could just share, if you'd be willing, what are your thoughts on the misconception or the concern, perhaps, 
that restorative justice is um, not safe for victims and in turn is possibly also offender centric and um you know how how can we help people see a little bit more into the window of how in fact they're quite or the process is quite the opposite from that sure and certainly uh, Michelle you're welcome to chime in as well well, so the, the first thing um, is that all the requests that we take in these serious and sensitive crimes are victim-initiated. Um, so the people reach out to us, so we do get um, letters and requests um, from individuals who are incarcerated, um, who have an interest in meeting with um, the people whom they've harmed or their families. Um, and, and unfortunately, based on sort of our agreements and the way that we operate in, in the state of Wisconsin, um, we don't reach out um, to, you know, whether it's victims or surviving family members um, on behalf of individuals responsible for harm. Um, we do offer an alternative service for them where we sort of walk them through uh, kind of their half of, of that process um, and have the opportunity for them to uh, work on drafting an apology letter that, that doesn't get sent to, um, to the person but gets placed on file with the Office of Victim Services and Programs. Um, so our, our program uh, and the process is I mean, it is sort of victim-focused and offender-sensitive um, in a sense of, like, we are definitely caring about both parties um, in this and are attentive and attuned to both individuals. Um, but this comes from a space of, um, you know, looking to provide healing to, um, to, to people who have experienced significant and substantial harm. Um, so that sense of... of potentially not being safe for victims, um, we take great care, um, again, even in just sort of the initial screening of individuals um, and individual appropriateness for the process and for honoring um, victim-initiated requests that come in um, in, again, the careful sort of screening and analysis of um, of other parties who are involved. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, that sense of it, it being a little bit of a collaborative effort of needing agreements from multiple parties within um, the system to look at that just to make sure that everyone feels good about this this going forward. And at every step of the way, you know, at every meeting, um, we're making sure that this is going to be a, a good experience. Um, if we feel like mm -hmm. uh, it's not mm -hmm. going to be helpful or beneficial to bring people together or that it could potentially be harmful or re-victimizing, we won't do it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there has so, been... So what you're saying is, M Michelle, Michelle could have made a choice at any time, correct? Uh, to say, you know, this, this may not be for me. It is 100% yes. voluntary for both parties. That, that we cannot and yeah. would never force Great. anyone to participate okay. in this process on either side. Yeah. And and my, my question in a way is rhetorical because I kind of know the answer, but yeah. it, I think these discussions are so wonderful because there's a lot of misconception in the public hemisphere around restorative justice. So what you and Michelle are so courageously willing to share in that episode and here tonight um, can go forward, I think, in helping to kind of dispel some of the misconceptions. So thank you. Thank you for so your patience. A couple points I would actually like to add um, to that in thinking about this. Um, so the first is that yes. I view this really as an empowerment process, that this is giving control back to individuals who've experienced extreme harm. Um, I do not act in a paternalistic way. Um, I always talk about with people that they know what they need more than I know what they need, right? I'm not them. They know themselves best and what they're looking for and what is going to um, help potentially bring them 
peace and healing um, and allow them to control the process as, as much as possible. Um, that I will honor those requests in that way to deal with this, this um, issue of uh, and restoring power and of power to, to victims, right? So dealing with the world of, of victim empowerment, allowing them to make choices. Um, if if we don't feel like someone's appropriate, I'm I'm not just going to say, well, we just don't think it's appropriate and, and not give them any information. We're going to discuss thoroughly what the situation is. Here's what potential concerns are, um, looking at potential barriers and potential alternatives that if we may not feel that a face-to-face -face meeting is going to be uh, feasible or appropriate, then we might look at an alternative process. Um, we will do whatever we can to help provide healing um, for people. Um, if direct individuals might not be appropriate, we can look at, um, at surrogates. Um, if that's something that a survivor or victim would be interested in meeting, that um, I will do everything in my power um, to provide an opportunity and a space for people to move forward in their lives, to potentially let go of of pain and hurt and things they've been holding on to um, for years. As, as we've got the ability to do so, um, I will, um, I'll do it. So, so that sense of thinking about victims' choice and, and honoring people, um, I think it is the highest and best way um, that I can imagine to allow them the freedom of choice to take power back um, rather than dictating to them what is right or, or appropriate for them. Um, mm -hmm. I want to give that control mm -hmm. to them as much as I can. Mm. Thank you so much. And that's so well said. Thank you. Um, the, the, and would that we all can enact that if we're in a facilitation position. It's very hard sometimes to be a facilitator. So I really want to honor and thank you for what you do. Um, very difficult place to be at times. And I can tell you do it with grace. Um, and so I'd, I'd like to come back to you, Michelle, if I may. And mm -hmm. I, I know that many of us who saw the episode on Sunday noted probably the significance of what you shared around the memory that you had of Thomas in, I believe, the fourth grade. Um, third grade. That you had a very, sorry, third grade. And... I'm just wondering if, if there's anything you'd like to share around um, I, in assuming that, that, that the meeting that you had with him a year ago was perhaps the first time you'd seen him since that time in third grade. Was it was, it was. anything? Was anything? I'm sorry. What no, did I you just, say was anything? I'm just wondering. Yeah, how did that strike you? What what was present for you in in that sense of like what was important to possibly convey around the Thomas of third grade and the Thomas that you were sitting in front of in that courageous meeting? Um, I think it was important to I mean he was a very quiet um young man as a third grader. Um, there were only two classrooms of students at every grade level in that school, so it was a very small, um, close-knit um, community school. So it would have been hard for me not to remember 
um, kids and who they hung out with and all of those things. Um, I've taught for 24 years, and I remember most. It's very hard-pressed that I don't remember kids that have walked through my classroom doors and who they hung out with and who their friends were and all those kinds of things. Um, So remembering where he sat and who he hung out with on the playground is not atypical for me to remember. Um, So um, he looked a little different, but he had very similar demeanor um, to what he had in in third grade. Um, Still very quiet, um, reserved, um, polite. So it it did not surprise me the way he um, the way he seemed. Um, Of course, I could tell he was hurting and, you know, I, you know, just like I can tell with the kids I work with now, if they're hurting about something, you know, sometimes the words that they say or the words that they don't, you can, sometimes you can figure out what the problem is and, you know, you don't just turn to drugs because, you're bored on a particular afternoon, there's usually a reason behind it. And as he said, that's what he's doing right now is figuring out, you know, what those reasons are and how he can do better when he gets out and um, and change his life. And that's that's what he needs to do. He needs to um, be successful in his sobriety and um, and create a new life when when he's released. Michelle, when so, thank you. When when did when did you first know that uh, about the option to meet with him and um, about restorative justice and could. Could, could you share a bit about that moment, um, if there was a definitive moment? Was it a call from Jonathan, or how did that happen? How, how did you first no, learn about I, the potential? I have a, uh, I have a friend that is a, um, well, at the time she was a lawyer. Uh, she became a judge after that. And so it was a dinner conversation that we had had, and she put me in, ch- in touch with a a friend of Jonathan's who I had a phone conversation with and then um, then she uh, said, well, you should really call a friend of mine who is Jonathan. And then, um, you know, the dominoes just kind of fell, you know, correctly. And I don't believe in coincidences. So, you know, I just think that, you know, things aligned up properly and this is the end result and it was just part of a a plan to do what was supposed to be done so you know and I think it had a positive outcome and 
really there were only um there were only three reasons for me to do it um that was to um, gain some clarity for myself and um to gain some clarity for my family and um for my kids to learn something and um I hope that those three things um, were apparent in what was seen. Mm. When when you say for your kids to learn something, would you unpack that a little bit more if you'd be willing? What what do you mean by that? Just out of curiosity. Uh, well, I have I've taught for 24 years and um my oldest kids are now in their mid 30s and they have kids of their own and um I have second generations worth of worth of kids and some of them live in the community and some of them don't and you know you you become you know a staple in a community and people know who you are and um you know these families and they are they're extremely important to me and I want them to be protected and I want them to learn about life not just about things in textbooks and this is one of those life lessons that you know I've always told my kids that choices have consequences and this is one of those choices that had extreme consequences and you know sometimes your choices have positive consequences and sometimes they have negative consequences and you know this was a biggie and um so you know we talk in school about consequences of smoking and drinking and drugs and all of those things and and you know it's not just in a textbook it's real life and and they they need to see it and they do mhm so that's that's why it, it that's one of the many reasons why it was important for them And I believe in in the episode, part of what we did see was a, a statement that you made referring to them and and to um, the greater community as being you know that you feel responsible for. You could feel that very um, deeply in this episode. The responsibility that you feel for for your students and former students and their families. And I appreciate um, how that links into in many ways uh, the foundation of restorative justice really looks at relationships as being the synovial fluid or the the glue of society of of humanity of this planet uh, as far as humans are concerned and um, when we're not tending to our choices and to our relationships um, it, it falls apart so I, well, I was very struck to by the that old, moment it goes back to Go the ahead. the old adage of taking a village to raise kids mm-hmm. and I firmly believe that it does and Molly I will attest that nope. from the very first time I met Michelle 
that is how she talked about the children that that she taught. She referred to the children that she has taught and interacted with as her kids. Um, that sense that she does feel an extreme commitment and connection to them, um, values them and their experiences and what they're going through and their lives, their futures and their potentials with extreme uh, value and seriousness. Um, so again, that was not just you know that was well before any of this ever ever came up to um, to be involved in this project um, with with uh, with Van Jones. That has been the staple from from day one of how she's spoken about how she views her role and what she wanted to see come out of this um, and the educational piece um, to really help save lives. Mm. Thank you, Jonathan, and and Michelle, both of you. And, and just a reminder to everyone that if you would like to get involved in the conversation, you can type a comment or a question into the Q&A tab tonight. Um, there's an incoming question from Mary. Thank you, Mary. And she asks, how does someone request a high-sensitivity process? What is um, with, involved in that? Sure. Uh, so with my program, I mean, we receive them a number of ways. Um, the Again, for a lot of people, um, they might reach out to the Office of Victim Services and Programs. Um, when we look at the state of Wisconsin, the prison system um, has an incarcerated population of, um, you know, well over 20,000. Um, the Office of Victim Services and Programs has almost 30,000 registered victims um, with them. And so there's a, a fair amount of contact that might um, occur there where, where they reach out to that office for some bit of information um, related to their case. And, um, you know, they might be mentioned, it might be mentioned to them um, at, at that point, having contact with that office. Um, I also have relationships with, um, you know, various prosecutors and prosecutor offices around the state uh, where, I might get a referral from from them where they might think the case is um, is appropriate. Um, the vast majority of cases that we deal with are post adjudication, but we have um, dealt with cases that are pre adjudication, so you know prior to a conviction um, and and sentencing. So while you know concurrently with the traditional criminal justice process, uh, there's also a form um, that people can fill out on, on directly on our website that victims and and survivors can request services directly um, from us and be connected that way. Um, sometimes it's social workers, um, sometimes even defense attorneys who have um, families reach out to them. Um, and so we've, we receive requests from a lot of different um, spaces, but I would say those are probably um, some of the most common and probably the two most common are going to be mm -hmm. uh, the Office of Victim Services and Programs and people reaching out to us directly. And what about offenders and the people who are causing the harm? Is it is there a way for them to make it known that they would like to explore a process or explore initiating if there's interest um, with with their victim, with the people they've impacted? So we do receive letters, um, and obviously then we, we might know um, that there is an interest, and uh, if we do work with them, then the Office of Victim Services and Programs will know that. Um, but, again, we do not reach out directly on behalf of 
of individuals who are responsible for um, for harm, um, and really in respect of people who have experienced harm um, that may not want to be contacted, um, who right. feel like they could be set back on their their own personal journeys. Right. Of healing by having having that reach out. So again, when we do offer alternative options um, for those individuals, we might work with them um, as well in a restorative fashion. Right, and and really this leads to a question that I think is very important um, and links to our last week's discussion with the incredible Taria uh, Walter um, or Walters that is from Alaska, who whose process um, with her son's murderer was the first of its kind in Alaska. And um, some of our conversation last week surrounded the uh, the stipulation in place of no contact, which is obviously there for a reason, and you just referred to that reason, you know, out of respect to people who have every right to not want to be in contact with the people who've harmed them. However, um, is there, given given the fact that, in in some of these cases, people um, can actually be traumatized further by not having the ability to contact um, one or the a other. Toy. Great. In can, in can our county, more? in in our county anyway, we had the choice of whether we wanted contact or not. That was given to us. Um, at the time of sentencing and at the time of sentencing we did not want contact and that was a choice and we were told that we could change that at any time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of you know your feelings are extremely raw at that point um, mm-hmm. that was the the choice that we made at that particular um, mm-hmm. Right, and understandably so. Um, Absolutely. You know, the, the, so very understandably so, and and also the, the fact that you, like Jonathan was referring to earlier, Michelle, it sounds like you're you and your family were given a choice to make a different decision later, but there was no pressure one way or the other. It was all in Correct. your hands. Well, yeah. and not only that, I think that you know there. Um, three members of my household and, you know, we're all over the age of 18 in my household. And so um, we all have the freedom to make individual choices. So um, there's myself, my husband, and my daughter who is also over the age of 18. And so we can each individually make those choices. Mm -hmm. We don't have to make them collectively as a group. And we've worked in. I know that. Go ahead, Jonathan. Thank you. uh, I was just going to mention that, uh, you know, we've worked in in a lot of cases where um, those no contact provisions exist as a condition of sentencing. um, And then we work with the the individuals um, and then the relevant judges and courts and and where necessary district attorneys um, for those provisions to be modified. 
specifically to allow this process to happen. Um, so uh, again, Wisconsin exists under um, sort of various different iterations of sentencing laws. Um, so we really have sort of like four main ones of old law, new law, um, truth and sentencing one, and truth and sentencing two. And sort of each of those um, iterations of sentencing laws has different ramifications when it comes to um, to things like that. And so, uh, again, one of the important values that, that we add is understanding what, what the law is um, and examining, again, sentencing transcripts, what, what a judge um, orders and making sure that an order is, is recorded correctly um, and understanding when and how that may need to be modified um, and whether that's necessary or not. But also making sure that, again, we're, we don't want anyone to get in trouble because of doing this, right? So that we don't want to unintentionally cause harm um, to an individual um, who's, you know, again, who is incar incarcerated around supervision um, by permitting contact or allowing contact um, in the absence of some sort of change, right, to a sentencing provision. So um, that's something we, again, do take and, and pay very careful attention to um, and understanding it as sort of one of the ethical considerations of, um, of doing this work, of understanding um, the different legal elements and ramifications that get called into play when we're dealing with serious criminal matters um, and, and sometimes, again, so both with charged or uncharged conduct. Um, so that's sort of another thing is that we're, again, I'm also willing to work on cases where, um, you know, individuals, um, maybe a, a victim or survivor never came forward and never reported a particular crime um, or, a, you know, was uncharged conduct uh, for whatever reason, whether um, police chose not to arrest or, or prosecutors declined to prosecute um, or, again, nothing, no investigation taking place at all. We're still willing to um, to undertake those requests, um, but it's just going into it with an understanding of that we need to know what the potential ramifications are and where we may need to um, recommend that, uh, again, a potentially responsible party may need to seek legal counsel um, to understand those sorts of elements. That That's, that's sort of, again, just some of the, the benefits that I think we bring um, to it from uh, the legal world of, of all those sort of nuances um, of the way criminal law works and understanding sentencing and, um, and being able to operate within those parameters and work with all the system actors um, to make sure that everything is, is going to go smoothly um, in understanding uh, the way things interact. Mm. Really appreciate all this. It's really powerful to hear the, the details of your work and um, I'm sure people are probably very curious about the overall state of Wisconsin um, sounding like there's a lot of progress that's been made um, towards offering restorative justice at various levels. And I know um, coming out of Colorado, there's some very promising statistics, Jonathan and, and Michelle, that point to victim satisfaction um, and, and the surveys that I'm aware of are coming out of the Restorative Justice Coalition in Col of Colorado, which is rjcolorado, I believe, .org. And um, that's at least 85% of uh, victims report um, satisfied to very satisfied and a recidivism rate of under 10%. And now, mind you, these are youth cases, but still um, the, the data is increasing from um, you know stakeholder survey processes that have been going on now, I believe for five years in the state of Colorado. So I'm just wondering what what's your prognosis, Jonathan, of the state of Wisconsin, and what are you what are you measuring 
because we humans love to measure and actually it's it's pretty important to to get some captures of of just how powerful restorative justice can be when it's when it's done in in the manner that you're describing mm-hmm. um, any sure. any thoughts on stats and the state of of r j in Wisconsin sure i mean there's so there are a lot of uh, really good organizations um, that exist in the state of Wisconsin in in various places. Um, There have been some, again, very long-standing county organizations and nonprofits that exist in um, Wisconsin from um, Barron County, uh, St. Croix County, um, you know, Eau Claire has had a program, Milwaukee County, uh, here in Dane County, um, and, and other parts of the state. There have been a lot of elements, but primarily juvenile programs. Um, uh, here in, in Dane County, one of the things that, that um, we've been working on is establishing a community restorative court that is actually working with um, with adults on primarily um, uh, sort of misdemeanor um, and, and municipal and some felony cases, um, all pre-charge, um, so we're dealing with collateral consequences um, or to really avoid collateral consequences um, of uh, of conviction and, and of being charged with a crime and keeping people out of the traditional system. Um, so it's certainly something that is growing. Um, we have a lot of room to expand. Um, I think they've seen, a, again, a great deal of really positive results um, in in that work here in um, in Dane County with, um, a, you know, a, a right around a 90% successful completion rate in, um, in that Dane County Community Restorative Court program with very, very low um, recidivism rates of, of individuals um, on that. Again, I am aware of the sort of Colorado data and it's incredibly impressive and heartening um, and in a way to sort of, you know, leverage and continue to um, to build those programs um, around the state. Um, you know, I think we have a, a, a fair bit um, that I think there's a lot of iterations of what this could look like um, in the state of Wisconsin, particularly in collaborations. So that's one of the unique things here is that we do have a collaboration between the district attorney's office, um, Dane County Human Services, and the various police jurisdictions um, working in partnership um, and moving in this restorative direction and trying to offer restorative justice services. Um, Speaking from my own program and just sort of some of the the numbers that come out of here, um, you know, last time I had looked, um, we were right around about a 98% um, sort of, again, like, you know, very, like highly satisfied or very satisfied um, and, and individuals who would recommend this process to other people. Um, and, and none of the, the other individuals said that they wouldn't recommend it. They were just sort of like not sure, right, whether or not they would or wouldn't. Um, that sense of thinking about, um, you know, whether that would be appropriate um, to them. So, you know, we haven't had one where we've, act, you know, where we've brought people to, um, to a dialogue where, um, where they regretted doing it um, or where there's been a, you know, a negative outcome um, in, in certainly all the time that I've been here. Um, and again, I think that's, uh, you know, in large part to a lot of the careful preparation. Um, there's also people who, that we, it's still successful if people get what they're looking for out of that process and, and they may decide that they've gotten everything they need without potentially needing to meet with that person. Um, that's also been something, you know, come that's happened where we might feel that the dialogue would be great between the people. Um, but if a, you know, a survivor says, you know, I've gotten all my questions answered. Like, I, I feel good. Like, I don't feel like there's anything more that um, would be gained by us necessarily coming together um, and and they're satisfied. This is, again, not about us in doing this, um, but that is that has happened multiple times um, where where that has been um, an outcome. I mean, it's it's that's really not captured by, like, oh, a successful dialogue that's taken place. Um, 
but still to that person has been incredibly meaningful and they feel like they've gotten out of this process everything that they've been looking for. Mm. And just to be also clear about the statistics that I was sharing um, from Restorative Justice Colorado, that's what we call juvenile programs and mostly misdemeanor, some felony cases, but mostly misdemeanor cases. Although um, many people in the field can say very confidently that the programs in New Zealand um, and specific to Colorado, again, have heavily influenced the growth of programs in the United States due to the success of any type of uh, of crime. Um, that includes high-risk, high severe crime, uh, adult cases that are, are being um, you know, put, put through a restorative justice process at, to, to a lot of success. In fact, um, quite a few judges over there are saying that that's, that's actually the most effective process for a violent crime, which is very scary to a lot of people to hear that comment. Um, so I, I'd love to, to turn towards maybe one more question or two and then go into some closing thoughts from each of you tonight. And again, thank you all who are tuned in tonight with us from wherever you're coming in from. If you're tuning into the podcast version of tonight's discussion, make sure to please check out the Restorative Justice Project at the University of Wisconsin, for which Jonathan Shar is the director. Um, very dedicated facilitator and has a unique position with a law background to build bridges cross profession and system because many people are playing a role in all their various pockets of justice in transforming systems and and providing these these, these transformational services um, and obviously are very astute so um, I have a question coming in that is asking a very practical question and that's how is the process paid for or financed? Um, we have an interesting answer to that here in Colorado, but I'll let Jonathan um, and Michelle answer to that first. Go ahead. Sure. Go ahead, Jonathan, because I don't know. <laughs> sure. I mean, so it is. Um, it is a service that um, that is is offered. I mean, we do not charge for um, for the service to provide this, and we um, again travel around the the state. So. Um, we have um, sort of a couple different um, funding sources um, that we've utilized. So there's some funds that are provided by the institution or school itself. Um, other funds sort of funnel down um, in the form of grants to um, to do this work. And um, then I've also helped try and fund um, some of the work that we've done here through uh, providing trainings and through some of my own um, sort of private work to help sort of self-fund um, what we're doing. Great. Uh, I, I'll go ahead and add just quickly that here in Colorado, Senator, or then Representative Pete Lee, he's now Senator Pete Lee, passed uh, with many, many dedicated people um, a law that is self-funding, um, a bill that goes, uh, I believe it's $10 surcharge on tickets that goes into a pool that goes then directly to selected programs throughout the state of Colorado. Mainly those programs are focused on community-based and school-based restorative justice um, with youth. 
However, some of them have been known to be developing and expanding their adult services and diversion programs. So um, I, I think that was a brilliant, brilliant piece of legislation that came up in Colorado, and that was, I believe, approximately in 2014. Uh, you can find out more about that at, at RJ Colorado. Um, do you know of anything else like that, Jonathan, just by chance, um, uh, actual laws that have been passed that, that help um, RJ programs, uh, pilot programs, to be self-funded? Um, so I, Colorado by far has the most comprehensive legislation in the United States um, when it comes to restorative justice and particularly sort of that element of, um, of funding in that way. I would say, again, the vast majority are going to be, you know, county or community organizations that are, um, again, either funded via, uh, via grants or um, via direct county funding. Um, whether that's from human services budgets or um, or various other departments, um, but uh, you know, as, as far as um, across the nation, um, there are I think right now 34 states with some form of corrections-based uh, victim offender dialogue programs, which is again sort of some of what we're doing in the um, the more serious and sensitive crimes, um, and that what that looks like is is quite different so I know that there are some spaces um, receiving some funding through uh, VOCA that funnels down through the Department of Justice um, and that's sort of one of the other sort of known um, known funding sources uh, and uh, I think in Florida they're they're exploring this uh, sort of this element of, of some services um, that are sort of court funded um, so that's sort of, I think there's a lot of creative ways and creative spaces, um, but yeah, I mean, the Department of Corrections in various states um, does a lot of that, that sort of work through their Office of Victim Services, um, whatever it's sort of named or what the iteration looks like, um, has been a different space. So um, some are funded in that way, whether it's program staff and then have volunteer facilitators or, um, or direct or dedicated staff or relationships with outside entities. Mm. Thank you. And so as we turn towards closing this discussion, I just want to again thank both Jonathan and Michelle for being here with us tonight and just invite uh, Michelle to come back to you for a moment and see if you have anything you'd like to leave us with uh, as far as reflections or anything you want to make sure that, that maybe we, t we take with us from being a part of, of your experience. I would just say that um, it was an extremely powerful experience. It was um, something that I think everybody had to go into with an open mind. And, um, you know, excuse me, not have um, a lot of preconceived expectations and just let happen whatever was going to happen. And I think I think people just have to um, be thankful for whatever comes out of it that's positive, and um, you know I don't know I, I I think that I think that we just need to feel blessed for the blessings that we have. 
I think that's all I have. <laughs> well, I would, um, I guess I would close with, with probably the, the same thing that I've told any sort of media outlet that I have ever talked to, um, and that relates to again sort of this this really difficult or complex issue um, of of restorative justice and forgiveness, and often the conflation that occurs um, in describing or discussing the process, um, and that you know just putting out their very clear message that um, you know restorative justice is not necessarily about forgiveness, right? It's about whatever a person is looking for um, in this process. That that is a very deeply personal um, choice and that it can be life-changing um, for people even when that is is not the outcome. I've seen, honestly, um, some of my most powerful um, restorative justice dialogue experiences have been cases where, like, those words are never used or at the end, um, again, sort of a surviving family member or victim says, you know, I, I don't forgive this person. Um, uh, you know, I, I may never, um, but their whole life and their whole world has, has changed. They've talked about all their anger and hatred for the world um, being gone and just living very differently um, after that. Like, I know a lot of times, and that was even some of the focus or emphasis that I sort of saw the story trying to be directed in, in, in that direction um, here because it, it makes for a good, um, it makes for a good piece um and, and that's the sort of media stories that we hear about um, all the time. But I can sort of say that I, what I don't want is I don't want um, anyone who feels like they might potentially benefit from getting questions answered, getting information, meeting with the person, or having some communication with the person responsible for harming them, um, thinking that it might not be for them if they're not in that space, mm-hmm. uh, or that if that's not what they're looking for. Um, I have no expectation um, of that in this process, and nor should we. Um, is that a possible outcome? Yeah, it is, and, and it does happen more often than a lot of people might think, whether or not parties go into it expecting it, wanting it, thinking about it. Um, you know, it, it may happen, but that is not the sort of chief motivating factor for why we do what, you know, what we do <clears throat> or why people potentially seek this out. Um, the reasons why people enter into this process um, vary by the individual and are as unique as each individual um, who contacts us. So that's sort of just something I, I kind of want to leave us with is that that's often the restorative justice stories that get told. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that this story was a little bit more complex um, in mm-hmm. in examining that, but I can just say like every other interview I've given, so I put this in here at the end because every other interview I've given, I've, I've always talked about that and it never makes the piece. Um, and, and there's a sense of like, look, there, there's one thing I want people to walk away is that this process can be beneficial to almost anyone. Um, the biggest complaint that we get, you, you raised earlier, like of people that we only deal with victim-initiated requests. And so we, we hear from lots of people who are incarcerated um, who do want that opportunity. So I would say as well, if you're thinking about this, would that person be open to it? You know, if, if some time has passed, there are literally hundreds and potentially thousands of individuals who are incarcerated or have committed crimes who would have an interest in, in meeting with um, the people whom they've harmed for a variety of reasons. Um, and so just consider, like, if you feel like there's something you could benefit from engaging in a restorative dialogue process, pursue it. Um, and 
and talk about that with us as as facilitators. Uh, you know, but if you never reach out, you'll never know. And I just want to encourage people to do it because how it can change your life, the profound ways in which I have seen it shape um, individuals on both sides uh, of a particular experience um, has been incredibly profound and dramatic. And, and again, it's been life-changing. People have described to us after having completed this process as it giving them their life back. Um, that they felt like they had been incarcerated as well, um, or that they too have been dead since this crime occurred, um, and and they're able to live a whole new life um, after engaging in this restorative process. So um, you can figure out whether it's going to be right for you and know that um, it is 100% voluntary that people can stop at any point that they don't feel like they want to go on, um, that you know no one is going to be forced to do it. You're not committing yourself to anything, you could potentially um, very easily change your mind um, about it. So there's a sense of, I just want to encourage people, if you feel like there might be some value in it, please look into it. Um, please reach out. Um, after the, the piece we had, that that uh, different piece that we had air a few weeks ago, there was lots of people from around the country um, who reached out, and, and where possible, I directed them to local resources um, to, uh, to help them find some bit of peace or healing in their life. Um, but I feel like if that's what we can do for people, um, we ought to. Mm. And I, and I think that so much. You know, Go ahead, there's Martha, the please. there's always the hope to move. It, I mean, if you're stuck in the place that you're in, there's always the hope to move to a forward place. And I think that was, you know, you hope for you know, someplace different, to know something more than you knew before. And I think that that's always, you know, you're hoping for something that you didn't know before. And I think that that makes it brighter. And so if you get to a place that you haven't been, that makes it better. And that, I don't know, it just makes life better. Yeah, I never use the word closure, right? There's a sense of that's another, like, media word. Like, again, forgiveness and closure are two words that I never bring up and don't use. And I, and Michelle, this is probably going to sound very similar because you know that I, like, said this stuff to you when we, uh, yeah. when we started. Um, it's that sense of, like, I try, again, these idea of, like, ING words finding some healing um, and finding some some forward movement, that sense of moving people in a positive direction, that we're going to hope to move both people um, in a positive direction when they come out of this. But understanding that it is incredibly complex um, and it's a privilege to work in these um, spaces. And I think, again, as restorative justice practitioners, like I don't know any restorative justice practitioner who won't do whatever they can to help someone find what they're looking for, whether that's information um, and or, again, some something, whatever it is that you're searching for, like we will do our best um, to help you find it. You can't find it if you don't look. Exactly. Wow. Well, I just want to thank the both of you again 
for the courage it must have taken to go on camera with such a personal um, devastation, to say the least. That's uh, to put it lightly, and to be willing to show us um, on camera in the segments that we did see, as you noted, there was much that we didn't see, um, primarily we didn't see, and even more moving forward that we won't see, but um, it's it's really a sacred space to be here with you and to have been with you in the episode to see that there is something that can come out of even the most unthinkable. Um, and so, again, I just want to acknowledge your courage, Michelle, and yours as well, Jonathan. And, again, acknowledge um, the Redemption Project and Van Jones and his team for all the work that they are doing to try and raise the bar on reducing incarceration in the United States. In fact, we house more of the world's prisoners than any other place in the world, and yet we're only 5% of the global population. Um, we obviously have some work to do. Um, rolling up our sleeves is what you guys are doing. And um, I just want to thank you so much for this moving uh, conversation tonight and encourage everyone to really go back to what Jonathan and Michelle have shared tonight. Listen to this again. There were some in incredible pieces of wisdom here. Uh, I know I'm going to. And um, to also check out the law school, University of Wisconsin-Madison Restorative Justice Project. And please join us next week as we continue the discussion post-episode 6. And we'll be with you for another couple weeks um, through this series. It's been an honor tonight and a pleasure. Um, very, very wonderful dialogue with you both. Um, anything else just in complete closure tonight? We'll sign off. And so without uh, further ado, then, thank you on behalf of Restorative Justice on the Rise. Um, thank you to this global network that's with us along this journey, and we'll see you next week. So long for now. <laughs>